Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys who founded an IT company talk IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me, as always, are my two co-hosts, Chitinda Candola and Will Dalton. How's coronavirus going, guys? <laughs> Good. I'm hopefully getting to the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So welcome, everybody, to the coronavirus uh, episode of DDK Pod. Apologies for this. All three of us have got it. It wasn't because we were having like a mass hug or anything. We're in different parts of the country, but we all just happened to catch it simultaneously. So if there's a bit of coughing and spluttering and generally sounding like we're hungover for this episode, then I do apologize. But uh, show must go on, I guess. So yeah, it's rubbish, isn't it? I'm not enjoying it. <laughs> Would yeah, not recommend. Not. Getting COVID is not going in the reco section. In our country at the moment, it's absolutely... Yeah. Yeah. So at the time of recording, we're it's the 30th of, uh, of March today. So we're about to come to the end of free tests in the UK and all sorts of stuff. So it's a brave new world, isn't it? But mm-hmm. I look forward to all the idiots who haven't done any of the reading popping up and going, oh, if you just going to treat it like a cold, why did we ever have lockdowns and stuff? But oh God, you know, you can tell that's coming, <laughs> can't you? But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, my, my whole family have had it recently and it's been pretty grim, but coming out the end of it now. So that's good. So a couple of other bits to, to cover off before we go into the main part of the show. There have been some major world developments. The, the, the Russian word for elephant is schlon and the schlon in the room is uh, unfortunately what Russia are up to at the moment over in Ukraine. It's just worth us obviously saying that we we stand with the people of Ukraine and we, we're appalled by the war and the aggression that Putin and his regime have kicked off over there it's it's just horrendous to, to see war return to europe in our lifetimes and ddk is looking at various options i believe we've started making some charitable donations already towards people who are helping with the, the efforts over in ukraine i know people personally who are connected to ukraine through their family and stuff and i wish them all the very best it's a very very difficult situation thankfully i think most of their family members are safe but you know our, our prayers go out to everybody who's uh, who's involved and it's a uh, it's a horrible thing, isn't it, to see? So we just wanted to say that up front and say that we're uh, our thoughts and prayers are with everybody in Ukraine. Well done, Putin. <sighs> well done is perhaps not the words I'd use, but <laughs> he's... Uh, what a man. What a man, eh? Yes. What a... Uh, yes. Let, let's leave that there. He's definitely one of those, yes. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it's probably best if we don't say it. But anyway, so on with the news then. Let's let's move on to hopefully slightly more sunny topics. So, Tinder, did you want to go first with your news story this week? Yep, happy to do that. So I was going to talk to you about cryptocurrency heist that's happened very recently. So hackers have managed to steal $600 million worth of cryptocurrency that has been part of the Axie Infinity Group's uh, cryptocurrency. What's happened is that this is known as the largest heist in crypto history, but they have managed to do some kind of backdoor attack through the network's RPC node and abuse the signature that the Axie validator has to be able to get this cryptocurrency from the Ethereum blockchain. So that's a story in that uh, we've been talking a lot about security and some of the positives recently in our podcasts around uh, blockchain cryptocurrency, but somebody's managed to infiltrate that and steal some, and that was a story. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Not quite sure how this. It sounds like they got their digital signature. So yeah, they've managed to fake digital signatures, according to the news article, and they've done that because you need five digital signatures for every transaction for this type of cryptocurrency, and they've managed to fake them and hack private keys as well. Wow, they must have got their private keys to be able mm. to 
Yeah, because yeah. you can't fake a digital signature. They must have got the private keys in order to yeah, digitally so. sign. It's a fo- a forged digital signature, effectively, isn't it, with the private key, I guess. It yes. must be. So they hacked the keys. Well, it will be the same signature. signature. They've, just got, they've nicked the keys, haven't they? Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. Nicking, nicking the but, door key and, and breaking into the house, but they're, not, they're just basically opening the door, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's kind of what I meant. Yeah, they're basically masquerading with the correct signature but they shouldn't yeah, be able yeah. to do that it's got, just because they've got the key the other thing they did was created a fresh ethereum address to place the funds in as well but then they split them between multiple addresses like they started off with one address and, and split them yeah yeah hide the money in various corners so that's like, corners the, of the, that's like the warehouse isn't it in the edge of the mm. city where they mm. use the getaway car yeah and then they got the five cars yeah. in the warehouse while the yeah, thumping hollywood yeah. music plays yeah, and, and they're they all counting go off the in, money they all go off in different directions to deposit it at different banks, yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm going my head anyway. <laughs> yes, you're uh, you're very much the 70s heist movie. <laughs> uh, frame of yeah. frame of reference for your imagination there. But yeah, fascinating story. Yeah, they're good old un- un- unbreakable, unhackable blockchain. It's done well, hasn't it? Well, if you're going to nick the private keys, though, do you know what mm, I mean? Uh, it's what not, can you do? You're not, you're not breaking the blockchain. You're just stolen the keys. The fact that it's blockchain is actually irrelevant. Yeah. Mm. Indeed. Fair point. Will, did you want to go next with your news story? Okie doke. So I've got a couple of articles and it's relevant to the, I was going to say the Ukraine war, but I'm going to call it Putin's war on Ukraine. One is called Brave New World of Putin. And it was published in Ria Novosti, which is part of Kremlin's basically propaganda machine. And the article was published early. And this was a, this was a month or so ago now, a sort of two days after Russia invaded Ukraine, thinking that it would be, you know, Russia would conquer Ukraine in, in a matter of days and that the Ukrainian people would welcome Russia in with open arms and flowers and say, thank you for invading us. Here, have our country. And so they, they, this, they, this article was, was published explaining why they did it and how the reasons behind the, the invasion and how it was ultimately unifying Russia with, the, with, with Ukraine and why. And, and the reasons behind it are, are fundamentally to do with the breakup of the USSR, which was, which was, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, I think it was in the 90s, wasn't it? And how that's seen in Russia as a disaster, basically liberating Ukraine from the West and bringing it back into the motherland. It's an interesting article because it sort of is an insight into, into the thinking, the thinking, I suppose, in, Pu- in Putin's mind and, and maybe in Russia's mind, I don't know, the people of Russia, in terms of how, you're libera- how they're liberating Ukraine and bringing, them, bringing the country back to the motherland. I was just going to say, I understand a lot of the, the kind of decision makers in Russian government and advisors to Putin are all ex-KGB KGB from that era, right? That They've got this yeah. kind of emotional investment in the belief that Ukraine is just an extension of Russia and that they just need to come yeah. back home. Yeah, well, Putin's from that same... Cut from that same cloth, isn't he? Ex- yeah. Ex-KGB from that era. So he was around when it all happened. Which brings us to the, so the second article, which is called The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> By <Ouch>. Noel Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> and this was published in The Medium. This actually is a, it, it, it provides a history of what was then called Rus. Which is the kind of the land the, the uh, land that in, involved Russia as it is now, Belarus and Ukraine. And they they do have a, a a shared history, very close shared history, going back a thousand years. Although, depending on 
what country are you from, they interpret that history in different ways. So Ukrainians' view of the history is very different to Russia's, is very different to Belarus. But they are part of the same people going back a thousand years. And you often see Putin quoting that about how the West is trying to eradicate a thousand years of history. Um, And that's what he's talking about, even though Ukraine has a very different view of that history than (laughs) Russia does. That term Rus is still used in India and Pakistan to describe Russia. Right. They still use that term Rus. Is that how you pronounce it? I said Rus. Is it Rus? Um, I guess that might be the Indian twang of pronouncing a Western word. I don't know, but yeah. But again, a fascinating art. I encourage you to read it, actually, because it is... It's quite an independent view of it. It just tries to factually depict the history, this thousand-year history between Belarus, mm. Ukraine, and Russia, and, and how they're intertwined and how they evolved and how they went their separate and how Ukraine is ultimately a much more West-looking, more independently-minded country and how Russia is quite you know, a, a very different model, shall I say, to, to, yeah. to, to the West, as is Belarus. So, yeah, they're the two articles that, that, that I recommend. Yeah, get them out on Twitter. That oh, sounds okay. like a really good idea. And speaking of getting things out on Twitter, because we've been a little lax on that in the past, but I think we should try and get the things that we talk about out on there. My news story this week, I'm sorry, by the way, everybody, the news is going on a little bit longer, but it is important to talk about Ukraine and the impact that's uh, that's happening. So mine is, is not on Russia or Ukraine, actually, my news item. It's a slightly different. Volvo, makers of, of cars, that they are uh, from Scandinavia. They have published a very interesting report, very, very interesting in the last couple of weeks. And I thoroughly applaud them for doing this because they're in a quite unique position to be able to do it. And I'll explain why. So the report is the rather catchly, the rather catchly titled Carbon Footprint Report, Battery Electric XC40 Recharge and XC40 Ice. <laughs> right? Stick, stick with me. So what Volvo have done, which is is very commendable, I think, is they've taken a look at their own production cycle for a car which is available in both a fully electric mode and a fully ICE or internal combustion engine mode. It's the same car, it's the same chassis, it's the same components, obviously with the the exception being the systems that are required to support whichever power plant you've got in there. So lots of batteries and electric motors for the electric one and an exhaust system and you know traditional gearbox and clutch and all the rest of it for, for the, uh, the ICE version. And they have done a like-for-like comparison in terms of the amounts of carbon that are necessary to create those two different copies of the same vehicle, but one being fully electric and one being ice-based. And it's very interesting what they've, what's actually come out of this. This is a freely available report on their website that they've just put out there for the market to sort of have a look at. And essentially, what it reveals is that there is a substantially higher carbon footprint to creating the electric car than there is the ICE car at the moment. This is obviously at the time of publishing production standards will get better, things will get more efficient and so on as the electric car revolution goes on. But at the moment, significantly higher upfront sunk cost in terms of carbon footprint and damage to the environment to build the electric version of exactly the same car than the petrol version of exactly the same car. However, if you drive said car in a country which has no renewable energy or hardly any any renewable energy on the grid available, so you're not driving it on green energy, you will eventually reach a break-even point, but it's somewhere just after 90,000 miles in the electric version of the car. So you've got to drive one for 90,000 miles before it will become more green effectively Um, and that also factors in the amount of co2 that's being put out of the exhaust pipe of the petrol car when it's being driven around it's not just the 
the manufacturing cost as well. However, if you live in countries where obviously greener energy is available, and luckily in England is one of those countries where we can get fully green electricity from suppliers like Octopus Energy and Ecotricity and others, um, you can bring that break-even point forward. And I think, I think if I remember rightly, I read the report over a week ago now, but I think it was something like the best you could achieve was like 29,000 miles. But that still means that most people who are taking that electric car on a three-year lease are being less green in that three-year period than they would have been if they'd taken the petrol version of the car which is fascinating. Now, obviously, that is not necessarily true for all electric cars because this is a, is a car that is built on a platform which is also capable of taking a petrol engine, whereas something like a Tesla or a, a Nissan Leaf or a, you, know, you name it, something that, that's built as an electric car from the ground up and there is no ICE version available might have a different calculus. But it is very interesting because it's the closest thing that you can get to a proper comparison between you know, an identical like-for-like comparison between an electric car and a fully petrol car. And I was really surprised by how how long, potentially, you would have to drive the thing around before it actually became more green. So there's no doubt in the total lifetime of an electric car that it will have a positive impact, potentially. But at the moment, things are not great. I'll I'll say one thing about that. I I was going to not say anything, but I'm going to say one thing about that, is that ICE cars, internal combustion engine cars, have had, what, 120 years of evolution in its manufacturing process to fine-tune, to become the most efficient process. Electric cars has had, what, five, ten years? Indeed, the only, yeah. And, and it, so it's highly inefficient and will yes. only become more, more efficient. And if we were going to not do new things because the manufacturing process, you know, was really inefficient to start with we just you know we'd still be clubbing clubbing people <laughs> to death you know dragging them into our cage so i just want to say that manufacturing process will only get better for, for electric cars and has probably already reached its pinnacle as far as ice cars is concerned i completely agree with you and i think i kind of mentioned that a second ago apologies if it wasn't clear enough but yeah so that the report talks about that as well and the fact that that you know cool. it goes into all the whys and wherefores and reasons and and you know what why things are the way they are all to do with you know how the how the stuff is is procured in order to build the batteries and you know all sorts of stuff it's a fascinating report it's yeah. a lot it's a long report i encourage people to read it because i found it really interesting to scan through but good on volvo for doing it because they've actually yeah, kind of made you know if you don't have that that long view of the world that will's just mm. just spoken about you know, that could actually put you off buying an electric car. So they may have done themselves out of some sales by doing that. But if people are not open with their data, and if we can't do these comparison exercises, we'll never have a sensible point to move forward from in order to make informed judgments on these things. It will always just be people shouting at each other, I'm right, no, I'm right type stuff. So I think good on them for, for putting that information out there, to be honest, because it's very difficult to compare a Tesla to a Vauxhall Astra because they're, they're totally different supply chains, totally different manufacturing processes. So any kind of attempt to do a comparison requires you to kind of fudge the numbers a bit. But as I say, what's good about Volvo is that they're in the unique position where they're building both on the same production line. So they can literally say like for like, the only differentiating factor is the powertrain. So yeah, it was good of them to do it, I think. I wonder if it's more efficient in the manufacturing process to have to build a car, design and build a car that's purely geared towards electric rather than the car that's you know it sounds like the car can either be ice or electric so it can be ice hybrid a, yeah. or electric so you can yeah. have you can have any of the spectrum on that particular vehicle so obviously they've had to engineer three different powertrains that will fit into the same space 
and then they just fit whichever one the customers ask mm. for. But it's the same chassis, it's the same wheels, it's the same electrics, mostly apart from the electrical car management stuff and hybrid battery management Which is management probably then stuff. a very efficient process. So it sort of goes against what I've just talked about. No, so but I, mean, I, I, think, I think just the production process for electric car components, everything from the motors to the batteries to yeah. what have you, is is not very good yet because it's in its infancy, yeah. as you said. Whereas yeah. for, for ICE cars, we've been doing it for hundreds of years. We're very good at it. We've got them to about the best point that we can. I, I'm just saying it's interesting. And I think no, that every, everybody yeah, should have is. a look at stuff like that because I'm, I'm by no means arguing against getting a fully electric vehicle. I've just bought one myself. But I'm, you know, I'm just saying that there's a lot of polarized arguments either way. And it's interesting to get some actual factual data rather than just be a fanboy either for electric cars or, or ice cars because both have their merits at the moment. But in the long run, it cannot be good for the planet to keep driving ice cars around. So, you know, it's it needs to go that way, but the efficiency in the production process really needs to be there. And the carbon footprint for producing electric cars needs to be massively reduced if we can, because then that break-even point will come much earlier. Anyway, that's the news. So shall we move on to the main topic then, chaps? Uh, not as much time as we probably normally would have for this, but let's canter through it anyway. So cyber warfare and propaganda, timely, because obviously for what's going on with Ukraine at the moment. Jatinda, did you want to kick us off? Uh, yeah, so what we wanted to talk about is the use of technology, specifically computer technology, that is quite prominent in cyber warfare and also the support of propaganda from the use of technology and how it's applied. There's probably some very kind of timely examples of this in the media right now where obviously we there's a war going on in Europe. A lot of the kind of work that each of these countries are doing isn't necessarily on the ground floor um, uh, through tanks and, and people shooting each other. There's a lot of support and work going on in the background from a cyber perspective. So tools and techniques are being used by countries all over the world to both protect themselves and also to target other states to try to get a strategic advantage. So it's it's really much ingrained in military use. Then there's also examples of cyber warfare used by individuals to target organizations and stuff as well. So that's what we're going to talk through, giving examples of where it's been used from a military perspective and also from a business perspective. Because this is used both sides, right? I mean, I, I suppose, I suppose from a from a Western point of view. We always think that it's, you know, Russia and China that are um, using yeah, cyber warfare against us. But, isn't it? but it, it, yeah, but, uh, which actually, which actually is propaganda in itself, isn't it? It yeah. is. I was just going to say that's funny. Funny yeah. how that's the perception that a lot of people on the street have got, isn't it, of this when it's absolutely not true. But when you look at who are the biggest players, right, that use that use that use the cyber warfare, which I suppose you can categorise as espionage, sabotage, and propaganda. Who yeah. uses that the most? US. Yeah. <laughs> Israel. No, no surprises. Yeah. UK is, yeah, mm -hmm. and then China and Russia. So actually, yeah. you know, three Western-leaning countries and then what, what China and Russia. So, you know, it's yeah. a very, very balanced across <clears throat> all, the, all the major players within the, within the world. And arguably some, of the, arguably some of the biggest stories, such as the destruction of the, I think it was Iranian centrifuges, with that, um, that, that worm that oh, they yeah. stuffed in there, stuff like that. Um, arguably, the biggest stories about successful cyber attacks have actually originated in the West mm. and been targeted at people who 
people on the street might think are, are the biggest culprits. I looked at a, a list of cyber warfare organisations per country on Wikipedia, and I found it quite funny just comparatively looking at the number of organisations per country. And when you get to the United States, it's several pages long. You, you'd have to scroll four times to get through the list, whereas when you're looking at uh, um, other countries like Australia, it's like two sentences. The ones that surprised me in that list was uh, USA was, was the biggest. That's no surprise. I guess their, their budget's like that. UK was up there, and again, not surprised. But North Korea's list was huge in comparison to, to China and Russia, for example. I thought that's quite funny. I think sometimes, though, that can be because these kind of services in places like Russia and China are much more centralised rather than yeah. there being a hundred different organisations doing it. Yeah, um, because a lot of it is more state sponsored, I guess, or, or what have you. But I could be wrong in saying that. I mean, I don't know if Russia. I mean, when Russia does propaganda, it's very obvious from my point of view. Or I don't. I don't know whether that's West propaganda on me. <laughs> to, to show that Russia is doing propaganda on us, <laughs> to, do my head in. Got you. They've, They've got, got you. me already. Propaganda circle. A propaganda, yeah. yeah. Propaganda, vicious propaganda circle. But the the way that I don't know if you know the West is is they, they obviously do it, or whether mm. it's just and and whether it's just a bit more subtle. So you know the kind of propaganda that infiltrates social media for elections. You know it happened. If you look at the Conservative Party, for example, in the UK, yeah, th there was a report that actually 90% of what they come out with and say could be related to propaganda, right? Mm. <laughs> in terms of how they, how they spin things, how they present things that isn't actually 100% true, right? And exactly, yeah. that's propaganda, I suppose. Is that the definition of propaganda? Versus what Russia do when you look from the outside into Russia. I mean, it would be really interesting to understand it from a Russian point of view. You just see blatant lies on TV being mm. presented to the Russian audience and that the Russian audience is then restricted from seeing anything else. We're not restricted in seeing anything else, right? We can go and see whatever we want, but we're told a lot of bullshit, whereas Russia is told a lot of bullshit and is restricted from seeing anything else. Maybe that's the difference. I don't know. That's a good point. I think it was quite difficult to find very clear examples of where there's UK-based or uh, Western-based American propaganda in play that's uh, been proven by evidence. And I, I managed to find one, actually, that I found quite interesting. There is a lady called Lauren Quensberg. Laura Koonsberg, the BBC's political editor. Laura. Oh, Laura. It's Laura yeah, Koonsberg. Laura, Laura Koonsberg. So she's the new Andrew Marr. She is the new Andrew Marr. But yeah, anyway, yeah. But that's not going to mean anyone to our listeners <laughs> around the world. So let's not get into that. So she's the uh, BBC's political editor, and um, she was at some kind of uh, event where the Chi a Chinese foreign minister's spokesperson was on stage, and um, from the crowd, Laura challenged her about a link and a statement that uh, the Chinese government had made about the BBC being not regulated and having links to a certain person called Adrian Zenz. So this chap, Adrian Zenz, is apparently supplying lots of fake news and propaganda to the BBC. So this Chinese foreign minister, I'm not even going to try and say her name, she's on stage, Laura is in the crowd, and she kind of challenges us to prove that the, the links of between the BBC and Adrian and also the lack of regulation. It's, it was quite kind of interesting to watch because as soon as she's challenged, the lady, the Chinese 
foreign minister spokesperson, her kind of body language changed and she kind of accepted the challenge. It's quite evident. And she started to shuffle her papers immediately and changed her kind of body language and started looking at Laura and the BBC team. And then immediately she asked her colleague to play a video. And the video had an interview with Adrian Zenz and it included evidence of him being paid by the BBC and lots of different facts and, and, and kind of pieces of information joined up together. It could all be propaganda in itself, but when it was presented on stage to all of these people, Laura didn't say anything or neither did anybody from the BBC's team. And then she goes on to talk about certain examples of where the BBC have created documentaries using footage of anti-terrorism drills in China and using that footage to, to kind of suggest that... COVID-19 was developed as a capital weapon and these are examples of how they're using it. And she was able to kind of show all of this footage and show the examples and stuff. And again, the BBC guys didn't respond to it. There's also evidence of an example she showed where the Chinese authorities have been trying to kind of break up some sweatshops in a certain part of the country. But that same footage was used again by the BBC to show a completely different news story. So this foreign minister then talks a little bit about how the BBC are regulated because Laura mentions that Ofcom are there to regulate uh, the BBC. But what isn't kind of evident in its entirety is the BBC World Service has no regulator and has legal impunity as well in the UK. And they're allowed to kind of publish whatever news they want without any kind of regulation. So it's quite an interesting kind of piece of footage that I found and uh, it just kind of highlighted that it's not just a very kind of Eastern and China and Russia type of thing. Because uh, there's so much information, right? Yeah. It could be presented, manipulated, if you like, or put into a different context in, in whatever way the particular me- country and message wants to portray. Do you know what I mean? Mm, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really hard. And it could be the BBC's at fault. It could be the China, you know, it, it, it yeah. depends. It's- you know, it could be wrapped up and presented in so many different ways by whoever, just to, just for just for gain. I was rattling that one around in my brain, actually, and thinking, who do I believe here? <laughs> I know. <laughs> because it's so hard, isn't You it? know, the Chinese yeah. could very easily have doctored yeah, the BBC could have got hold of a load of legit footage, which the Chinese have then sought to recast as actually, you know, we were breaking up these sweatshots, not setting them up and so on and so forth. But equally, you know, you could potentially imagine a situation where in order to reinforce that Western narrative, the BBC and essentially yeah. fudging the facts or, or what have you. I guess the interesting thing was that Laura challenged the, this lady on stage in a crowd and Laura had nothing to say. Neither did any of her team when any of this stuff was kind of displayed to them. So that was the interesting part of it, that, okay. There might be policy there, I guess, but that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think just on the... I think we better move on from propaganda in a minute, but I think one thing that I found very interesting back in another part of my career, having worked for the government on the borders system many, many, many years ago now, so the UK's border control system, back when that contract was still with Raytheon Systems, big American defence contractor who came in to do it. Rather famously, that all fell apart. There was a pretty messy divorce between the UK government and, and Raytheon Systems. And I remember watching the BBC News about that particular story. And obviously, I had been very, very intimately involved in in that contract being delivered, albeit in a very, very small area. I was not responsible for it falling apart, by the way, before you start uh, start laughing at me. But I remember watching the BBC News story and thinking, this is nonsense. <laughs> like, this is literal nonsense. Like, none of these facts are right. Like, not not any of this is true. Like, n- not really. I mean, the fact that the contract had fallen apart was. But 
everything they said about it, all the metrics they said about it, everything they said about phase one of the system, which had been rolled out. So we were working on phase two, but there was a pilot system that had been put live and may very well still be live for all I know. Just everything in it was just wrong. And I, I remember that moment. It was, it was like a sort of the scales fell from my eyes kind of moment when I thought, I'm probably never going to trust the news again now because if they can get this this wrong about something that I actually know about, like in intimate detail, if I know all the facts and, the, and this is the best attempt that the news has made to report this particular story, how the hell am I supposed to trust anything <laughs> you know, that, that I get told on the news? Because there could be a similar level of fail basically. And I don't think they did it intentionally. I think it was almost like unintentional propaganda where the journalists that had reported it, I have no idea who it was, just hadn't grasped the facts properly. So they ended up reporting it in a really skewed way, which didn't give the public an accurate summation of what had actually happened and why a load of their money had been tossed down the drain. It was fascinating, but that's almost like propaganda by mistake. Do you see what I mean? Because it it just isn't right. Um, So I think sometimes that can also skew the narrative. Yeah, I think it's dumbing down of journalism and general over the last... I mean, we've sort of talked about this as well, haven't we, about truth, what is the truth, mm. and how, it's, how it can be presented in so many different lenses, depending on who's giving it. You know, history is written by the winners, sort of, you know, that, yeah. that phrase is so true. And, and you never really know unless you're intimately involved in it like you were, Julian. You know, you'll never really know. And I suppose in a way you have to... The storyteller has to abstract out from the minution of the detail. But in mm. doing so, you might lose, actually, the, the important factual concepts of what you're trying to get across. It's so difficult. It's so, so difficult. And as we get more and more and more data, and as everyone has their own <laughs> opinions, it just becomes, it becomes a nightmare to understand what is actually the truth. And that, that works for, it works at the micro level, doesn't it? in terms of us ha- delivering stuff for clients and what and understanding what the truth is there, to the macro level in terms of big countries wanting to present their own side of the story and yeah. wanting to get the mm. masses involved in that and how to best do that. And that's what leads then to politics because I've never thought politics is about the truth. <laughs> politics is about manipulation, isn't it? It's mm. about yeah, trying course. to get people to come to your point of view. Yeah. Both China's you. doing it. And vote for you, and China, and 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 China's doing it, the US doing it, the UK are doing it. And yeah. what is a mistake is to think West is right and East is wrong. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. true. Because oh, we've um, all got we've got our own opinions. Just to loop this back around then to cyber warfare a bit more, because we've talked extensively about propaganda. So I suggest we park that one for the moment. In terms of the the use of cyber warfare, one use is to deliver propaganda, I suppose, to to a particular country or a particular group of people. And we've also talked about how cyber warfare can be used to restrict people's access to stuff or, or just mm. not so much cyber warfare as just government level control. I mean, we saw this in in Turkey when uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan took over, I think, and, and sort of started bringing all the media under state control. We've seen it in Russia recently, a backlash against it where Russian, very, very brave, it should be said, Russian citizens who work for these news channels have started protesting live on air and then got banged up for 15 years for doing it and stuff. But in terms of actual cyber attack now and moving on to, you know, DDoS and and malware and the various techniques for that, what did you find in that area, JK, that was related to this this story and that we should be talking about? So I think this is where Will kind of had the deeper level of research to talk about different tools and techniques. Do you want to go for it, Will? Oh, I don't think, I think sabotage. So this is sort of like about 
I suppose it, it, it's espionage and sabotage, isn't it? It's really, espionage and sabotage, basically. Yeah, about trying to break things. But that's been going, you know, anti-viral uh, infection and malware has been going for how long since computers were out, <laughs> right? Exactly. And there's and and they're just they're just getting, I suppose, more and more evolved. There's there's you know, for what was once known as a virus, now you've got like I don't know. 10, 20 different categories of virus, of malware that can infect computers that you can download and has, you know, a little bit of a little bit of malware involved in it that blocks your computer and you've got to give people money. And there's various organizations um, around um, the world that have been doing this for years, for years. And and some are some are state sponsored. Some are, some are kids in a garage writing stuff because they're pissed off with their teacher. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not something new. It's been going forever and ever and ever. And uh, it's just be, they're, becoming more, they're, they're becoming more prevalent and there's much yeah. more different types and they're much more sophisticated. But exactly. ultimately, it's the same kind of thing. It's about a virus and it's about infecting something to either demand money or prevent someone doing something. Yeah, or, or to steal someone's stuff. Yeah. Or to steal their data, indeed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember the famous story about, and I don't know if it was actually obtained through cyber warfare, but like when I think it was the F-35 Lightning was developed and the first prototype of that flew. And I think within two weeks, China was flying like the Chinese knockoff which then crashed and exploded mm-hmm. and I think killed its test pilot or something. But they'd basically stolen everything, managed to steal everything somehow. And I'm sure we do the same thing in reverse. I mean, why would you not? It's only sensible, isn't it? Of course, do, oh, of course yeah. you do. We just don't tend to fly them around in front of cameras <laughs> and then have them <laughs> crash in giant fireballs. And they crash. Yeah, and, and there's the there's a, a very interesting story of the Russian version of the space shuttle, which is still languishing in a, in a hangar somewhere in deepest, darkest Russia. There's pictures of it. Where again, you know, they managed to nick all of the, the data for that and then tried to build their own version, but it never got off the ground, literally never got off the ground because they didn't have all of it. You know, they just had enough to sort of make something that looked a bit like it, but they couldn't match the the endeavor. And we've seen it done with software, haven't we? And, and all sorts of things. So in many ways, cyber warfare these days is not just about doing the equivalent of what you would do with a bomb or a missile where you go and destroy something like was done with the Iranian centrifuges. There's also the whole smash and grab raid, you know, send the special forces in to go and stick a bag over someone's head and pick up all their files and drag them off in a helicopter in the middle of the night, you know, so that you can mm. you can get that secret. And it's the metaphorical equivalent of that now, which we're seeing more and more. And again, the narrative is very much, oh, it's Russia and China doing this all the time. But it's, you know, everybody's doing it to everybody else. That's the whole, the whole thing, isn't it? And espionage, right, has been between companies forever, hasn't it? Oh, companies, companies do it a lot, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. nicking their yeah, secrets, definitely. nicking their special source, you know, in order that they can gain a competitive edge. I mean, that's been going around for hundreds of years as well. It just becomes more and more sophisticated. And it's, espionage is like, it's very much also state-sponsored thing, isn't it, espionage? Whereas sabotage and viruses, sort of everyone can do it, and there are playbooks and recipes to allow you to do that which is pretty, pretty easy to get hold of. Espionage has always been quite, 
you know, you sort of think about spies then, don't you? And you think about government-sponsored mm. activities. Although industrial espionage is a huge thing, isn't it, between companies Indeed. as well? But yeah. yeah. Um, so on that point, I did read a very informative article by analysts at Goldman Sachs, and uh, the conclusion was that the, the biggest impact of damage when it comes to organisations being attacked is to the brand and their reputation, because if they're being penetrated and everybody knows that and they've lost data, whether it's theirs or their customers, they don't necessarily recover easily from that. Yeah. And that is probably even primary ahead of actually losing commercially sensitive data that takes away the competitive advantage when they're trying to kind of develop new products or ideas. Well, I think we saw one of the biggest examples of that ever in the UK, didn't we, with the Talk Talk disaster where they, because the the worst thing you can do is not just lose your own secrets, it's lose other people's secrets or other people's personal Mm -hmm. data. They got cracked wide open, didn't they, while Dido Harding was uh, was in charge, Dido Queen of Carnage as... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as the register of Dubter, which I thought was quite clever. But she, um, yeah, she was in charge when that happened, that huge breach, massive, massive breach, and millions of customers' records were stolen and all the rest of it. And I think they're still recovering from the damage of that one. Everyone has, right? Yahoo. Yep. Equifax. You know, if you look, if you look on the internet about companies that have been hacked and and personal information from their customers that's been stolen because you know i don't know an email and a username and a password is worth what three quid or something i don't know it's something like that you know and if you've got like thousands or millions of them but if you if you look of all the companies that we had there's so many so many and what they want to do is just keep that secret which is ridiculous because the first thing you should do is make it aware so people can do something about it right change username change your password for example yeah and and that has been a problem in the past is people trying to cover things up when really they should have been disclosing it so this all sounds horrible and dystopian and awful to everybody <laughs> listening to this probably most people have probably switched <laughs> off by now going oh my god these guys are depressing it's because we've got covid if you're listening to this what should your takeaways from this be i think for me it's you know, at the end of the day, you you have to do everything you can to protect yourself. So always download the latest updates for all of your devices because they will include security fixes that stop people getting in and nicking your stuff. Don't lose too much sleep over it at the kind of state level and stuff because there's nothing any of us can do to really affect it. And at the end of the day, this will continue to happen because espionage has always been a thing even before you put the word cyber in front of it. Um, did you guys have, have thoughts that you wanted to close on? Because we do need to bring this topic to a close now, unfortunately. Well, I'd say have an open mind. So, yeah, about know, the propaganda think, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think just because you live in the West doesn't mean you automatically should default to distrusting the East or distrusting Russia. No, not at all. I think the people within those countries uh, there's so much stuff. So, uh, there's so much we have in common with all of them, and they're not lying, and we're not lying. But ultimately, there is a propaganda machine everywhere. Not, you know, it's not just the East. Um, so you should always keep an open mind with what you hear. And I think for those listeners out there who are in, in other parts of the country, I think that that is a view that we, we're we certainly trying to introduce to people more and and I think is becoming more popular in, in over here in the West where we're recording this from because we do have listeners who are, who are in um, other countries like Russia and China and stuff. I think hopefully there is a bit of a change in that trend of seeing everyone from from the east as the sort of enemy, and it, and it is becoming a bit more nuanced, which is nice to see. I'll just add that there's a lot of information out there about how to protect yourselves as individuals against cybercrime. So it's definitely worth reading up and just being more aware of it and the different forms or ways in which you could be targeted and how to kind of combat that. 
Yeah, for sure. But as I say, as a very first step, if you do nothing else, just please update all your devices. <laughs> I found out the other day that uh, somebody I know hadn't accepted an update on their phone for about six months or something and nearly throttled them. So just make sure you're doing that, if nothing else, I think. What's their IP address? Uh, I'm not telling you. <laughs> on that note, we're going to move on to recommendations. Sorry, this has been a little bit long to everybody who's listening. We'll rattle through these as quickly as we can. So, Will, did you want to go first with your recommendation this week? Sure. It's called The Boys. It's on Amazon Prime. It's oh, two series yes. From 2019 to now. There is going to be a third. Not to be confused with Boys with a Z, which is who's a South Korean boy band. I'm slightly troubled that you know that, but okay, cool. <laughs> so moving on quickly. So think of think of the Avengers, like where where they've all gone a bit corrupt uh, and have sold out to the big corporate America, highest bigger, and they're all exploited for as much as they can get. So some of the things that they're up to, uh, they're people they save. They only save people where it benefits them on social media, for example. Um, they're advertised absolutely everywhere on completely inappropriate products. Some of the rescues that they do like go badly wrong and they try and cover it all up. Um, some are on performance-enhancing drugs because they're getting on a bit and their special <laughs> skills are waning, <laughs> so they have to improve it. I mean, it's hysterical. It's very, very dark, yeah. but really, really funny. The boys on Amazon Prime. It, it's terrific, yeah. And also, the I would uh, just chip in by saying I recommend the original graphic novel series that was um, that it's based off. So the yeah, the show is based off uh, a set of books. I think it was Grant Morrison, but I could be wrong. And they are even more extreme than the show, if you can believe it. But yeah, it's great. So I agree with you. Good reco, like it. Tinder, do you want to go next? My recommendation is uh, has been kind of brought to my attention based upon a current news story. So uh, most people will have seen Will Smith slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars this week. Round of applause. And uh, it led to a debate between me and a friend about Will Smith's greatest ever performance in a film. And he had voted Was that it? for he had voted for uh, the pursuit of happiness, and I voted seven pounds. So I wanted to recommend both films actually, seven pounds and the pursuit of happiness is two very, very good Will Smith films. He is good, isn't he, old Will Smith? I mean, not when he's yeah. slapping people about the face, obviously. What what a donut. But um but yeah, acting wise he's he's pretty cool. I want to see King Richard and um uh, yeah, the ones that you yeah. mentioned. Yeah, I want to see that. And Ali as well. He did that Muhammad Ali biopic, didn't he? And I, I've not seen that one either. What a, what a thing to do, honestly. <laughs> Are you sure it wasn't set up? I'm still not quite sure it wasn't set yeah, up. Emma's, I don't think it is. Emma was saying this to me. She said, I just can't believe it isn't set up. I think it must have been. But I, yeah, I mean, to do... I mean, this. it was quite an action man slap as well. He had all the moves in it, didn't he? It was like... Well, it just, was like he's crying afterwards, wasn't he, about he was, it? He was, I just yeah. can't... I can't... But he's an actor. I mean, A, if you're yeah. going to go defend your wife, punch the guy. Don't slap him. I mean, don't mess around. <laughs> yeah, do God, like, what is this? Do the job properly. Yeah, you know, uh, and... Sorry, no, that's a really toxic comment. I shouldn't make that. It's a very... Uh, I am no. joking, obviously. <laughs> good, yeah, before, good one. Good, good recommendation. That's your before, recommendation. Before, <laughs> it, yeah, before anybody writes in, I am joking, by the way. I was not... I'm not condoning violence. Or oh, are you? Uh, no. But um, on a serious note, like, yeah, what a... What a dumb thing to do, uh, especially on the best night of your career, I guess, because you're getting an actor for best Oscar. Like, ah, anyway, whatever. Yeah. So my 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 non recommendation, my do, I do not recommend is slapping people because it's a stupid idea. Yeah, anyway, yeah. punching instead. Totally yeah. <laughs> and totally 
Totally inappropriate. And just bizarre that there were no repercussions as well, that it all just carried on. Like, what? Like, if I did that to someone in a meeting, <laughs> I'd be frog marched out on misconduct charges, and rightly so. So, how does he get to stay there and not get arrested? And maybe and, that's yeah. what you need to do before a meeting, before a presentation, just go around slapping everyone. <laughs> they give you a presentation. Well, they might stay awesome. awake through my presentations then, I suppose. <laughs> Yep. Anywho, uh, so my recommendation. Uh, so I'm going to recommend ZapMap. Uh, I don't know if you guys have used this. I know everyone uh, yep. used to drive an electric mm-hmm. vehicle. But yes, so this is an app that's available, very useful in the UK. I think it's worldwide as well, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Anyway, um, basically, it provides a mapping service which highlights every electric car charging point across every network in the UK and provides you with an excellent filtering capability so that you can filter them down. So if you're moving into the world of EV ownership and you're going to be driving around looking to use public chargers, which most of the time you probably won't be because you'll charge at home, but if you are, this is awesome, this thing. It just shows you where every single charger is. It shows you what type of connectors are on there. It shows you uh, like comments. People can, can say, oh, I managed to charge successfully and how long ago that was. And people are very active on the network. So they're constantly chatting on there saying, yeah, this one's working, you know, managed to charge on it two minutes ago or whatever. And you can post pictures of, of your car plugged in there or, or a broken charger or what have you. Some of the networks actually respond on the app as well. So if you're, if a particular charging point is broken and you report it through ZapMap, sometimes the people who actually own that charger will say, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks for that. We'll, we'll go fix it or whatever. So, yeah, Zap-Map, very good app. like it a lot. And that even rhymed. And I think with that, we've come to the end of the show. So thank you very much, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate your time. Sorry that one was a little bit longer, but I think it's important that we covered Ukraine and everything else, because how could we not? If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. We are available on ddkpod or one word at ddklimited.com. That's with limited spelled out in full. So ddkpod at ddklimited.com. We're available on Twitter at ddklimited. And we are available on LinkedIn as Dalton Day Candola. So thanks very much, guys. And we'll catch everybody in the next one. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Cheers.